If you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, we have started a new series through the book of Jeremiah. And if you were with us a couple weeks ago, we started out kind of in the middle of Jeremiah because that's where it talks about the writing and the construction of the book and where Jeremiah actually put together everything that was for him. And then we jumped all the way back to chapter one and this calling and this commissioning for Jeremiah. And today we are going to be looking at Jeremiah chapter 7. Uh, you have some sheets at the middle of your table that have a QR code. So if you want to follow along on the text, uh, you can scan that and you can go to, a, it'll take you to a website with that. Uh, but before we do that, how many of you guys, uh, is there anybody in here that prefers store bought or store brand like things rather than like, like the products? Like if we talk about Cheerios, I know it's a low-res picture, but does anybody like actually buy the store brand or do you guys buy like the name brand stuff? So who's store brand? Who buys the store brand? Okay. It, it, do you buy it but you don't like it? You'd rather buy the other one. Is there anybody that only buys like the actual product? Is there like, if you have Cheerios, you have to buy Cheerios kind of thing. All right. Now what about like sodas? Like Dr. Thunder? Is it... Is, who do, has anybody had Dr. Thunder? It's, it's like the Walmart brand. Uh, Dr. Thunder, it's a dollar store brand, that's what it is. It's like super sweet and it tastes very little like Dr. Pepper, but you can get it for like a quarter of the price, right? And uh, when we think about these things, typically we don't like the fake brands, like the, like the off-brand stuff, the stuff that's just trying to replace it, but we usually want the real stuff. We want the stuff that actually tastes good, the stuff that's actually good to eat or good to drink. And today we are talking about real versus fake. We're talking about what it looks like to have real faith and what it looks like to have fake faith. Because what we're going to learn from Jeremiah 7 is that God does not tolerate fake faith. God does not tolerate fake faith. And so, as we jump into chapter 7, I want to give you some context because we're skipping a bunch of chapters. There are 52 chapters in the book of Jeremiah, so we cannot cover every chapter uh, in the eight weeks that we do this series. So, we're jumping around a little bit, but up to this point, what we've been learning is that God's people, this kingdom of Judah, has been disobeying God, has been doing things that they're not supposed to be doing, have been living in sin consistently more and more and more. And God is starting to recognize that and point these things out to Jeremiah. And so what's happening here is God is going to send Jeremiah to the temple to actually go and tell them about what they are doing wrong and what God is going to do about it. And so when we read this, what we're actually reading is God telling Jeremiah what to say. So it's not actually the sermon that he's giving, but it's God commissioning him and giving him the sermon. And as we go through these, all these verses, there's some one big idea, and I think we can really bring it down to one sentence. And I broke up that sentence for us because I want us to see what it looks like for God to address the problem. And the first thing that God says to them is that they have to make it right. They have to make it right. And so we're going to start in verse 1 of chapter 7, if you guys want to follow along on your phones, or I'll have it up on the screens. It says, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah, who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. 
For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, and if you truly execute justice with one another, execute justice one with another, excuse me, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place in the land I gave of old to your fathers forever. So, God's people have been doing things wrong. And God, instead of going and pointing out all of the wrong things that they're doing, what he's saying is, you guys are important to me. You guys have value. You guys are my people. He warns about this phrase, this, these three times he says, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And it's a way that people were using this, this verbiage and these phrases to justify the acts that they were doing. But in some translations, at the very end of that, it puts on you are. Because God is showing them, you guys are my people. You are a part of the temple. There's this double use of this phrasing there. And what God is doing is he's creating for them an out. A stipulation. A way to say, hey, you guys, you guys messed up. Like, you guys have done something wrong. And I want you to make it right. Because if you make it right, then you can still dwell in the place where you're supposed to. The place I gave to your fathers. He gives them three different ways uh, to correct their living. It's one, to not oppress those who need extra help. So whether it's the uh, widows or the orphans or the people that can't take care of themselves. The shedding of innocent blood, specifically blood that maybe wasn't for sacrifices that were supposed to be at the temple, but it was shedding blood of animals that they weren't supposed to be killing. And sometimes it wasn't animals. Um, And lastly, and this is the big one, is worshiping other gods. If you look throughout the Old Testament, there are so many warnings about worshiping other gods that God does not want Israel to worship anything else other than him. Because he is a jealous God, right? He is a God that wants to be able to love his people and have his people love him back. And when they're doing all these things, some of these things they're doing within the temple, some of these things God is warning them, hey, if you keep doing this, I'm going to have to punish you. And God cares about his creation. He wants what's best for his creation. He wants to give them an opportunity to obey, to come for him. But... He does not tolerate disobedience. We've talked a lot about obedience the last couple weeks. But God does not tolerate disobedience. If God is this perfect picture of justice, this picture of judgment of what will happen when they disobey, he can't just let things slip by. He cares about his creation. He cares about his people. But he can't just rest in sin. That's not who God is. He cannot be with sin. And in a context when we read this, I think it's easy to miss this because so much of Jeremiah is about judgment that I want us to see this picture that God wants to give them an opportunity to come to him, to bring these things before him and say, you're right, I was wrong. That there's this picture of hope, there's this small sliver and evidence of what it looks like for God to care about his people. God doesn't enjoy this. He doesn't enjoy telling them that he's gonna have to punish them. He doesn't enjoy telling us that we're going to be punished, but he has, he has to. I mean, he, he has to be able to put this before them. And so, what God is telling them is that they have to make it right because you've already made it wrong. 
If God says, make it right because you've already made it wrong. The problem with this situation is the people already messed up. This isn't like a forewarning, like, hey, you got to be careful because if you keep doing this, this could be a problem. In this situation, it's too late. So we're going to look at verse 8 if you guys want to follow along. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house which is called my name and say, we are delivered only to go on doing all these abominations? Has the house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I have made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen, and when I called you, you did not answer, therefore I will do to the house that is called by my name, and in which you trust, and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers, as I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. His people are doing vile things in front of the Lord. In his temple, in his presence, they were doing abominations. But it doesn't stop there. We're going to jump ahead to verse 30. For the sons of Judah have done evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have set their detestable things in the house that is called by my name to defile it. And they have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my mind. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no longer be called Topheth, or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter, for they will bury in Topheth, because there is no room elsewhere." And the dead bodies of this people will be food for the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth, and none will frighten them away. And I will silence in the cities of Judah, in the streets of Jerusalem, the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, for the land shall become a waste. If you didn't catch it, they were sacrificing children. They were killing sons and daughters because that's what the Canaanite people were doing. And I love in this passage, God's like, I didn't tell you to do that. That never even came across my mind. Yet they're doing it. It even talks about this place, Topheth. And it, there's a change of word there when we read through this. And it talks about that it's become the valley of slaughter. And it's interesting because the word there should still be translated as Topheth, but there's a little bit of extra, there's a few extra letters added on there to translate to something that points to shame. That the, what they're doing to this place is they're taking it and they're making it shameful in the eyes of God. And God's saying, I'm going to do something about this. That this valley is going to become your grave. This place is going to be the place where you will be taken down. God can't sit there and just watch these things happen. He has to do something about it. It's like the fact that if you have a family, a family member that's a judge, all right, let's say it's your father is a judge, and you get arrested for whatever 
problem it is, and you go to jail, you go to court, and you're on trial, and the judge says, "Well, I'm your dad. And I love you. I want to give you another shot. So you're good. You can go. You can go ahead." It's like sweet. I got off. Don't have to. Didn't go to jail. Nothing like that. So you're like, "Well, I'm going to go and rob a store." You go rob a store. You get arrested again. You get brought to court, and all of a sudden, the judge is like, "What are you doing here again?" It's like, well, you let me off before. Aren't you going to let me off again? And the judge, out of loving kindness, says, go, do this. Be, be alive. I love you and I care about you. Sweet. I'm going to go. I'm going to kill somebody. If they go and they get caught and they get brought back to trial and they slump down in the courtroom and they say, he's going to let me off. And it's like the judge saying, no, I can't. At this point, you have done something so wrong, so harmful. I can't do this anymore. We have to do something about this. That's what these people were expecting. That they were going into, they were going out in the world. They were doing these vile things. They were even doing them in the temple. And then they come to the temple and they say, hey, I'm good because I've been delivered. I'm fine because I'm God's people. And God's saying, no, that's not how this works. They're abusing the fact that they are a part of God's people so that they could get away with doing whatever they want. Paul warns us about this in the New Testament. He says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? It's too real. The fact that there's a good chunk of time between these two writings and people are still doing it. That they're still going and they're saying, I have faith in God and I'm gonna go do my thing because I have grace. I'm gonna do whatever I want because I have grace. And what Paul is saying, no. If you're going to commit sin, you don't understand grace. You don't understand what that looks like. Paul is warning that these things are dangerous and that God looks down on those who abuse the grace that he gives us. So if God is talking and addressing his problem to the people of Jeremiah's time, he says, make it right because you've made it wrong. And even though you still won't listen, please obey. We're going to jump back to the middle of this, of chapter 7, and God is coming and saying, I know you're not going to listen, but just please, please obey. So we're going to start in verse 21. Says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat the flesh. For in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. But this command I gave them, obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people. And walk in all the way that I command you that it may be well with you. But they did not obey or incline this ear, but walked in their own counsels and the stubbornness of their evil hearts and went backward and not forward. From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. So you shall speak all these words to them, but they will not listen to you. You shall call to them, but they will not answer you. And you shall say to them, this is the nation that did not obey the voice of the Lord their God and did not accept discipline. Truth has perished. 
It is cut off from their lips. God reminds them that they're asked to, the people before were asked to obey their father, and guess what? They didn't. And that those people before them were asked to obey their father, and guess what? They didn't. What's different now? He, God is telling Jeremiah, you're going to go and you're going to tell these people these things, but they're not going to listen. But I want you to tell them these things. I want you to bring these things because God talked about the fact that these people disobeyed and all he's asking for is simple obedience. If you were with us last week, we talked about our call and what we're supposed to do for God is simple obedience, yet it seems so easy to neglect this obedience. What God is receiving here is not real obedience either, but it's fake obedience. It is not genuine that these people are saying, yeah, I want to worship you, God, but then they go out and do whatever they want. God is saying they're not going to listen. For these people, it was too late. And we're going to see as we keep reading through the book of Jeremiah what that looks like. And God asked them, he told them to repent and turn away, and they wouldn't listen. And God calls upon us for the same, to repent and turn away from sin. And I want to tell you right now, I'm not, I don't want to be like the fire and brimstone preacher kind of thing, you know, but in reality, judgment is coming. Judgment is very real. Look at the book of Revelation. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Chapter 3 goes on to say, Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come against you. God's goal here is not to cause panic or confusion or frustration, but it's a legitimate warning of saying, I need you to repent or else you won't be with me. That if you don't go back to what you were doing, if you don't go back to what it looks like to live for me, then you won't be with me forever. He knows who are fake Christians. How many of us in this room come to Next on Tuesday nights, come to church on Sunday mornings to our services, and then immediately after one of those, you go home, you get wasted. Or you go and you you have sex with your boyfriend or your girlfriend. You have sex outside of marriage. That you go and you start to realize like, oh, this is, it's actually a lot more fun to live this way. Or you go out and lie and you deceive, that you neglect the gospel, and then you come back next week and you raise your hands and praise and say, I didn't do anything wrong. I, like, I, I love God, I love him, I'm going to take notes, I'm going to talk to people about how much I love God, and then immediately when you walk out the door, things flip. That's what's happening here. It's like, going to, it's like going to church and saying, I love you, Lord, I love what you have for me, and then going home and saying, I would rather do what I want to do. That there is this fake understanding of what it looks like to have grace. And if that's the way that you're going to treat grace, that you're going to say, no, I can go do those things because I'm forgiven, that cheapens grace. It makes grace worth so much less. We're called to repentance. We're called to say, I want to be better because God gave his son for me. He gave me an opportunity at life. And repentance is a requirement for obedience. But it simply is that God just wants us to recognize the weight of sin. 
2 Corinthians says, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieving, grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. My desire is that in this room, everybody that's sitting here will grieve, that you will feel grief. And that's godly grief that you will recognize the weight of your sin, that you'll recognize what you were saved from, so that instead of saying, I'm just going to go out and do whatever I want and then bank on the fact that I have grace so that I can come, I'm going to be with God forever, that is not how grace works. That is not what repentance is. Now hear me when I say this. When it's talking about that worldly grief, more often than not, it's talking about shame. That is not what I'm talking about. God died, Jesus died so that we could be rid of shame. We don't have to feel shame. So if you go and if you sin and then you slump back in your chair and you say, man, like I can't believe I did that. I shouldn't have done that. That is too much for God. Nobody's gonna love me. Nobody's gonna care about me. That I'm gonna slink down and I might as well just keep doing the sin because who cares anymore? That's shame. And that's not what God wants you to feel. What God wants you to say is that if you sin, when you sin, like we all will go out and do regardless, that you slump down in your chair and say, man, I shouldn't have done that. That was wrong. God, I want to be better. Help me to be better. I want to turn away from this. I want to repent from this. And I want to make sure that I don't do this anymore. And then you actually try to not do it anymore. That's what God wants you to feel. He wants you to recognize the weight of sin. God does not tolerate fake faith, but real faith comes from godly grief. If you're sitting in this room and you're struggling with what it looks like to really fight sin, or even to recognize what sin is, you have small group leaders that would love to talk with you to figure out what that looks like. That if you are in here and you struggle with shame, that you go and you sin like we inevitably will all do, and you say, this is, there's no way I'm going to be forgiven for this. There's no way God is going to love me because of this. There's no way I'm going to be loved at all because of this. That is what Christ died for. It's that you don't have to have shame. But what God wants you to see is that sin is real and he can't sit with disobedience. So if today in small groups, when you go there in a minute, if it means you have to be brutally honest, be brutally honest with yourself. If it means once small group is over, you grab your small group leader or you come find myself or Rose and you pull us aside and say, I need to talk about this. Do that. That looks like real faith. Not that fake stuff that's put out there just so that you can get away with things. God wants your faith. He wants you. Don't neglect that. I'm gonna pray for us and we're going to some small groups. Three you bow your heads with me. Lord, I thank you for today. I thank you for the fact that we get to come together, that we get to have fun, that we get to enjoy our company and the ministry that you've placed here, Lord. And as we dig into your word and we recognize and read some very hard texts, Lord, help us to look back to the beginning of this chapter and see hope, that you care about us, that you want us with you. 
Whatever that looks like, whatever it looks like to actually come before you to be able to have these things established so that we can start to fight against sin, help us to find that, help us to see that, and help it to be godly grief so that we can come and follow you better. And ultimately, Lord, it's because of your son and his work on the cross. And I pray, amen.